0: Welcome to the Reparadigm's podcast. We're launching a new series that we're gonna just drop kind of at random in the midst of our other series that we do, and the series is called Words Matter, however you wanna pronounce that. It's gonna be a deep dive into prominent biblical words, and of course, we're not gonna just talk about them in English. We're gonna talk about the original Hebrew or Greek behind them. So today, a conversation about euangelion in Koine Greek, what we all know as gospel
1: in English. If there's anything Christians agree on, it's that the gospel is important. But if you ask a dozen Christians, what is the gospel? You'll get a weird variety of answers. I think some people will tell you that the gospel is the most important belief in Christianity. Somebody might say, it's something that's critical to my understanding of faith. So if Mm -hmm. it's critical, then it must be gospel. Oh, if something that's definitely true, like that's the gospel. That's the gospel truth. Some people will say the gospel is good news about Jesus saving sinners.
0: Yeah. Because it does mean good news in Greek, euangelion. Or does it? Oh, all right. Let's get into it.
1: (laughs) So it's a little strange that although all Christians agree that the gospel is important, we don't seem to be on the same page regarding what it actually is. Proclaiming the gospel is of key importance for Jesus, the disciples, and the authors of the Bible. So the way we think about the gospel has a major impact on the way we understand our faith and on what it means to proclaim the gospel. It's a key part of what we're called to do as Christians. Now, since the English word gospel gets used in such a wide variety of ways, I want to narrow down what we're going to try to do here just a little bit. Yeah, please do. So, specifically, we're going to look at the way gospel gets used in scripture. So, in, in English translations, gospel is used to translate some form of the Greek word euangelion, or maybe it's a verb form euangelizo. Mm-hmm. If, if I'm going to use gospel and use this as a translation of euangelion, I want to try to use it in the same way that the biblical authors are going to use euangelion. It should mean the same thing.
0: Yeah, if we're trying to talk about the same thing that they were talking about. Now, it may be the case that we are just fine with talking about something that is patently not what the biblical authors are talking about. But if that's what we're doing, we should at least say that that's what we're doing. But I think in most cases, we do assume when we say good news or when we say gospel, that we are saying the same thing that Paul was saying when he said it.
1: Yeah. So what we're talking about is actually less a study of the word gospel, because you could just go look up gospel in a dictionary. You could go say Oh, how has the church used gospel traditionally? How does it get used in creeds? That's not what we're trying to do. Our goal today is actually pretty straightforward. It's what do the biblical authors mean when they use the language that we translate gospel for proclaiming the gospel?
0: Yeah. Mark says the beginning of the gospel.
1: Exactly. So what does Mark mean when he's talking about this gospel? And one note about actually this English word gospel and the way it gets translated. English translations of the Bible tend to use the word gospel more sparingly than the biblical authors use euangelion language. Translators in English will reserve gospel only for New Testament context. So just where that Greek word family euangelion shows up. English translators will never use euangelion in the Old Testament. I went through at least most of the main translations. I don't know of any English translation that will use gospel in the Old Testament. And I'm not criticizing translators here. (laughs) I think being a, a translator of the Bible would be really, really crappy. They're in a situation where any decision that they make is going to be wrong to some degree. So I'm not doing this to criticize them. I'm just pointing out that this has a weird effect on what happens when we're reading through the Bible. Mm-hmm. So if you're going through your Bible in English, you read through the whole Old Testament. You don't see gospel anywhere. Then you get into the New Testament and you start seeing it all the time.
0: Oh, even that dynamic's weird because, <laughs> you know, we say the whole story of the Bible is about Jesus or is about God's plan of redemption. And what is God's plan of redemption? Well, it is the gospel. But then you're like, okay, why do I read the entire Old Testament then and I see no gospel?
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's easy to get to the New Testament and think, oh, this gospel is like a brand new thing. Like it's uniquely Christian and it's not Jewish in any way. Almost like it's language that was invented to describe something about Jesus.
0: Yeah. Whatever the Old Testament was, God changed plans now in the New Testament, buddy.
1: Exactly. We imagine this like complete disconnect, partly because of the way our Bible translators have translated this word. That's
0: rather Marcion, isn't it? (laughs) Marcion was a famous dude that the church later condemned as a heretic because he saw the Old Testament God is fundamentally different than the New Testament God, et
1: cetera. This discontinuity is definitely not the case. The language of gospel and gospel proclamations was definitely not a Christian invention. Actually, I think it's the language that was selected by the New Testament authors Specifically because it already carried all the significance and meaning, both to Jewish audiences and to wider audiences outside of Judaism.
0: Gospel isn't a new like theological word. Just to be more specific, euangelion, mm-hmm. those type of words, those aren't specifically theological words that Paul is using or that Mark is using that only have a religious connotation to them. And not at all. It's actually a, a common word or phrase to describe something, which I'm sure you'll now describe that they then took to describe about Jesus and his movement and what he was up to.
1: Yeah. And it definitely does have religious significance, but it's not a word that only has religious significance like gospel does today. So in the New Testament, Paul will describe this gospel as having been promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So he's clearly seeing that the gospel he's proclaiming is connected to the teachings of the Old Testament prophets. So again, it's just unfortunate That when we only translate gospel in the New Testament and not in the Old Testament, we lose this connection. So if we're going to start looking at what euangelion means, or how gospel language gets used, the best and easiest place to start is by looking at the Septuagint. This is the collection of the Hebrew Bible and other Jewish texts that got translated into Greek a couple centuries before Jesus came along. The translators who were working on this, when they were translating what we call the Old Testament portion of the Septuagint, they use this language for euangelizo or for gospel proclamation actually a couple dozen times. So, it shows up quite a bit in the Old Testament. So, this means that while we read our English Bible and we don't see any gospel proclamations connected to the Old Testament, for a Jewish reader in Jesus' day who's reading the Septuagint, if they were to hear about gospel proclamations, that for them is scriptural language. Yeah. So, that begs the question for us, where in the Hebrew Bible did the Septuagint translators see gospel proclamations being made? We see them in Isaiah. We see them in First and Second Samuel, in the Psalms. They're scattered out, but there's definitely a few clusters of areas where we see them. And I think seeing those clusters is going to be really helpful for helping us understand how euangelion language gets used. So if
0: Mark was familiar with the Hebrew Bible as translated into the Septuagint, when he chooses to use the word euangelion or the idea of good news, the closest approximation to what that word means for him is probably what it meant in the Old Testament. Yeah. Or at least akin to that, you got to probably start with his Bible. And when he uses that word, I mean, he's got to be probably approximating what it meant in the Septuagint, the translation of the Old Testament.
1: Yeah. That's, I think, certainly the way you would normally expect language to be used. And the cool thing is to do this kind of searching and to go look into the Old Testament Septuagint, and say, okay, where do the Old Testament translators use this kind of language? Doing this is actually super, super easy. There's a free online tool called blueletterbible.org. Along with this podcast, we are going to include a short video showing how to do this sort of search. It doesn't require any knowledge of biblical languages. It will only take a minute or two to do.
0: And we're not even asking people to go outside the Bible. That'll make our listeners happy. <laughs>
1: exactly. <laughs> so if you want to go take a look at these couple dozen passages in the Old Testament and see where gospel proclamations show up, you can go do that yourself. We'll highlight a couple of these here. So we see gospel proclamations show up in First and Second Samuel a whole bunch. So in First Samuel 31, the Philistines are warring against King Saul and the Israelites. During the battle, Saul gets wounded. He knows the battle's lost. So he falls upon his own sword. He kills himself. Hmm. And then in verses eight and nine, the next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor. And they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people.
0: Yeah. To carry the good news to the house of their idols and to their people.
1: Yes. These messengers, the Philistines, are given this message of Saul's death. And they're sent throughout the land to go proclaim the news, or in Greek, to proclaim the gospel in the temple of their idols and among their people. So, here they're proclaiming the gospel and it's like the proclamation of a military victory. The Philistines had defeated their enemy. Saul and his three sons died in a single battle. That's a pretty good day on the battlefield.
0: So, the Septuagint translates it as, euangelion, good news. Exactly. We've defeated our enemy.
1: This is worthy of a gospel proclamation for them. In Psalms and the other prophets. So, Psalm 68. This is a psalm looking forward towards a day when God will return to save ancient Israel. God is depicted both as a tender father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, and as a mighty warrior. The author here says that when God marches before the people, the earth shakes. Kings and armies flee in haste. The chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. He crushes the heads of his enemies. He scatters opposing kings. His foes flee before him. The author talks about the people who are saved by God. And describes them as an assembly, like in a victory procession, singing, playing instruments, and celebrating the victory of God. This assembly is described as proclaiming the gospel. This psalm concludes with a call to the nations to recognize God's power, verses 32
0: to 34. Yeah. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God, sing praises to the Lord, to him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies.
1: It's a powerful God returning to save his people. How about gospel proclamations in the prophecies of Isaiah? So in Isaiah 40, verses 9 through 10.
0: Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, Yahweh God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him.
1: So this herald proclaiming good news, in the Greek is the herald who's proclaiming the gospel. And what is this herald proclaiming? What is he actually saying? Here is your God, see. The sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. So again, we see this over and over. A gospel proclamation is a proclamation of victory. It's a proclamation about who's in authority, Who's the one with real power? How about gospel proclamations outside of Jewish culture? How did other Greek speakers use this kind of language?
0: Right. Yeah. So that's like the Old Testament kind of context to this idea. But in the Greek world, they also use the same language And the Greek words that they would use to describe are Evangelion-adjacent words or gospel-adjacent words.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so there's this example where Greece was invaded by Persia. Greek people were terrified that they were going to be taken over by Persia. But despite all odds, Greece managed to defeat Persia. They pushed them back. After the battle, Greece sent heralds to go to every town and village in their country, telling the people what had happened, declaring to them that they were free. You don't need to be afraid of the Persians who are coming anymore we have defeated them. This is a chance to proclaim the gospel. This is the good news we're announcing to you. How about in Roman culture? So there's this inscription, it's called the calendar inscription of Prien. It was actually carved just a few years before the birth of Jesus. It's an inscription about Caesar Augustus. And this inscription, which celebrates Augustus' divine authority and the arrival of his kingdom declares, his birthday has been for the whole world, the beginning of the gospel concerning him.
0: That sounds like the beginning of the Gospels concerning Jesus Christ. (laughs) It
1: sounds very much like that opening of Mark. So I think if you were going to back up and just say, all right, in general, how does euangelion language get used in this world? You'd say, okay, in war, it's the announcement of a victory, right? An opposing king's death or a battle won would warrant a gospel proclamation. For Israel, they look forward to the day when Yahweh returns as their savior to crush their oppressors and free his people. That's the day they're going to proclaim the gospel of God and all the kingdoms of the earth will know his power. For the Romans, a gospel proclamation was a declaration of authority and power of the emperor. So I think if you're going to sum all of this up, you'd say, what does it mean to declare a gospel? It's an announcement of a military victory. It's a declaration of power and authority. It's a declaration about who's really in charge. Yeah. Who's really the king? One of the things that you hear immediately when you talk about what is gospel One of the first answers you'll get is, oh, it means good news, or maybe glad tidings if you're reading in King James Version. And this makes perfect sense because the word euangelion is basically a prefix eu, which means good or favorable, attached to the word angelion or angelos, which is like a report or a proclamation or some sort of news. So you just put those two things together, you get good news. But languages and words don't always work quite that simply. You can't always tell exactly how a word or phrase gets used just based on its grammatical composition. So I think one fun example of this is the English word awful. Mm-hmm. Awe means reverential wonder. And the suffix full means like as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So think about the word joyful with as much joy as you could have. So based on its grammatical composition, the word awful in English should mean having as much reverential wonder as possible.
0: Which would be positive connotations. Awe is almost synonymous with inspiring, but awful almost always means something terrible in modern English. Exactly. Something terrible, terrifying.
1: But to define what something means to know how it gets used, you can't just look at its grammatical composition and say, oh, okay, the the two parts mean good and news. Therefore, it just must mean the same thing as good news. Now, there's certainly some overlap there. I imagine this Venn diagram. One side is euangelion, the other side is good news. So there's like an overlap portion in the middle. There are euangelion announcements that certainly are good news, but the two are not fully overlapped. In fact, there's a lot of places in the Old Testament where the translators were translating something that certainly refers to good news, but they said, okay, well, yeah, in this situation, this is not a euangelion announcement. So if you look at Proverbs 15, 30, Light in a messenger's eyes brings joy to the heart, and good news gives health to the bones. So they're talking about good news here, but the translators did not use euangelion here. They used other language. So just because something is good news doesn't mean it's a euangelion or some sort of a gospel proclamation. the other thing that you'll notice pretty quickly about gospel proclamations is that they certainly aren't good news for everyone.
0: <laughs> yeah, of course, not for the defeated party, that's for sure.
1: If you're announcing authority or the victory of a king or great victory in battle, that's good news to everyone who's loyal to that king, but it's terrible news for their opponents. When the Philistines went around proclaiming the gospel after Saul's death, this was obviously not good news for the Israelites whose king and three potential heirs had all just died in battle. In Psalms and Isaiah, the gospel proclamations of Yahweh's return will mean his enemies are scattered, opposing kings are crushed, and captives are set free. These gospel proclamations are great news for God's people, but definitely not for anyone who stands opposed to him. When a Roman emperor issued a gospel proclamation, it was meant to declare their authority. This was an announcement that any opposing power claims were faulty. To anyone thinking about attempting to like come try to take the throne to usurp some power, the gospel proclamation of that emperor would have served as a threat. Anybody who might challenge their power. It's a way of saying, I'm in charge, so support my authority or else.
0: So your point here is, though Euangelion does mean good news, it's not necessarily good news for everyone. And Euangelion took on almost a life of its own where it was used in more specific contexts for a certain type of communication about political power, something like that.
1: Yeah, definitely. So it's more specific than good news, and sometimes it has meanings that are certainly not good news, depending on who the announcement's being given to. So to look at a possible definition of gospel and say, your definition of gospel is not always good news, does not mean that is inherently a wrong definition.
0: Yeah, it does not disqualify it. Just like if you use the word awful, and I'm like, you just described something that's not really awful, or like awe-inducing or anything like that, you'd be like, I'm using it in a way that's normal, a normal colloquial way to use the word awful, which has very specific connotations to it, most of them negative now,
1: fearful. Exactly. As a native English speaker, I don't stop every time I'm going to use a compound word and think, wait, is my use of this word in line with its grammatical composition? No, I'm just going to use the word as it's normally used.
0: And what you're saying is it's normally used in an almost specific context where an announcement's being made about the rule of some person or someone taking charge or an enemy being defeated, thereby giving your guy the rule and the authority. Definitely.
1: Yep. So let's imagine a little fictitious situation here, Nick. This is first century. You live in a city in the Roman Empire, and you're lucky. Your family is a good, reputable family, and you actually have a reputation for loyalty to the emperor and to the emperor's family. Now, upon the emperor's death... His son Marcus should become heir to the throne, but his son gets challenged by one of the father's military commanders who wants to usurp power. Is this fiction? This happened all the time. (laughs) This is fiction. It is not far-fetched. So Marcus and this military commander who wants to usurp the power go to war now. Like They're essentially fighting for control over this position of emperor. So they get their military forces and they're battling in and around Rome. News of this warring reaches your city. And has you and your family pretty concerned. If this military commander usurps the throne, there's a good chance he's going to want to get rid of everyone that he knows is really loyal to the previous emperor. And that's Mm. going to include your family. Now, if the emperor's son, Marcus, maintains control, all's good. You and your family are going to be fine. But in the meantime, you guys are all waiting very anxiously for some news from Rome. Now, finally, one day, a herald comes riding from Rome towards your city, and he's got an announcement scroll in his hand. He's come to announce which of these two parties was victorious. He's coming with a gospel proclamation.
0: Whether it's good or bad for me and where my allegiances lie, what he is announcing is a gospel proclamation. That's just what it's called colloquially in Koine Greek.
1: Yes. And in fact, the question for you is not necessarily, is he here to make a gospel proclamation? For sure, he's coming with a gospel Mm -hmm. proclamation. The critical question on your mind is going to be whose gospel is being announced. Is he here to am- announce the gospel of Marcus, the emperor's son? Or is he going to announce the gospel of this usurper? So the herald then rolls his scroll and begins his announcement. He goes, I hereby proclaim a message to be celebrated by all people. It is my pleasure to announce to the whole world the gospel of the great and mighty emperor. <laughs> he would pause for a <laughs> <Yeah>. Marcus! <clears throat> so it's at that moment, right? You guys are going to dance. You're going to cheer. Yeah. Like. Okay, you don't have to flee the nation. Like... don't have to worry about getting murdered. This is very good news for you. You're very relieved to learn that Marcus has taken his rightful place as the emperor. So nobody in that moment is super confused about what this gospel proclamation is. Nobody's going to stop and say, wait, what, what does he mean by gospel? Like Everybody in this culture would have known. The critical piece of information is not, what does he mean by gospel here? The critical question is whose gospel is being proclaimed? Whose victory and authority is being announced by this gospel proclamation?
0: Yeah, so show me how this language is used in the New Testament
1: then. The question is, are they using gospel in the same way as the Septuagint translators or the same way that it got used in Greco-Roman culture? Or do they shift to a totally different definition of gospel? Let's take a look at some examples. Luke 4. Jesus is in a synagogue and he reads from Isaiah 61. This is a passage about one who's been anointed to proclaim the gospel to the poor. This is one of those passages in Isaiah that uses this euangelizo language, this gospel proclamation. It's a little unfortunate that in most English translations here, this euangelizo, this gospel proclamation, isn't translated using gospel. I think it's probably because the English translators are trying to maintain continuity with the Isaiah 61 passage. Mm. So they want to quote it as close as they can. So it's a little unfortunate reading through this in English. You don't see this connection That would have been super clear for anybody reading this in Greek.
0: Yeah, we've said this before, but again, it's an important note that almost all of our English translations are translating the Hebrew Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible into English. And then the New Testament is the Greek New Testament into English. Translators have this decision to make, and sometimes things can be lost a little bit. And in this context, what's lost a little bit is the Greek word, that was used to translate the Hebrew Bible in Isaiah 60, which would have been euangelizo.
1: Yeah. Even in the Greek New Testament here. So when, when Luke records Jesus quoting this, he records him reading it in Greek.
0: Oh, interesting. And even
1: so our even English... there, wow. Euangelizo doesn't get translated gospel proclamation.
0: Because they're trying to almost quote the Hebrew Bible, which the New Testament author was probably quoting the Septuagint, which exactly. is a translation of the Hebrew Bible.
1: Yeah. Being a Bible translator is awful. I don't envy their situation. No. All right. Can you read Luke four eighteen through 19?
0: The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor.
1: So Jesus then sits down and he tells the people gathered around him, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, what happens next in Luke's account? I think this is incredible. Luke describes the crowds who are mad at him, want to push him off a cliff, but they simply can't do so. He describes the crowd's amazement at the way Jesus teaches with authority. He then describes Jesus demonstrating power over demons, casting them out, and describes the reaction of the people as amazement at Jesus' power and authority.
0: Oh, Almost like Jesus was saying, here is a gospel announcement and I am the one in authority. And the gospel writer is telling us and is demonstrating to us the type of authority that Jesus had and that this authority claim was in fact actually recognized by the people and by spiritual powers like demons too Yes, and nature.
1: How about in Paul in his letter to the Romans, which just a reminder is written to Rome, the capital of the empire.
0: Yeah. So Paul says in the beginning of Romans, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures, regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his namesake.
1: So, what does Paul note about the gospel? He notes that it was promised through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Right? This is not a new idea. He notes that it pertains to Jesus, the descendant of David. He comes in a kingly line. He was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. He refers to him as Jesus Christ, our Lord. He clusters all these terms of authority yeah, together.
0: our kurios. That's our, just a basic word for like master or Lord.
1: And he notes that through him... We've received a call to the obedience of faith. It's a call to loyalty or allegiance.
0: That actually connects really nicely with our conversation that we had with Teresa Morgan about this.
1: What is obedience that comes from faith when it's a response to recognizing true power and authority?
0: It's allegiance to that true power and authority. It's obedience. It's trust.
1: Paul connects the gospel with Jesus' power and authority. And this is not something that would have been a surprise to anyone in this audience who knew what Evangelion meant the gospel gets summarized even shorter in second timothy 2 8 there it gets condensed down to just remember jesus christ raised from the dead descended from david this is my gospel
0: why does he say descended from david i mean it's gotta be just to point out the kingly line
1: connection to a kingly line and raised from the dead which in that romans passage he notes is a signifier of his power
0: I mean, that's kind of the ultimate flex to be like, death itself has nothing on me. I've been charged here.
1: (laughs) And it's described frequently in the New Testament as a moment of great victory. Paul frequently mentions that proclaiming the gospel is central to his calling. And in the book of Acts, Paul's going around proclaiming the gospel of Jesus as he travels. And there's an accusation that gets brought against him and his companions. The accusation is, they are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Yes. I, I think exactly. That's what it means to proclaim the gospel of Jesus.
0: Wow. So the accusation against the early Christians was that they didn't fall in line with the political realities of the Roman empire and that they actually had allegiance to a different kingdom, to a different king.
1: Yep. A different kurios, a and, different Lord. And
0: that got them in trouble
1: for it. <laughs> yes, it did. How about a gospel proclamation in Revelation? So in Revelation, you've got This depiction of God and the people who are loyal to him in conflict with this opposing power. And this opposing power gets described as a dragon, a beast, or as the city of Babylon. And into this conflict comes an angel with a gospel to proclaim.
0: Yeah. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come, worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of
1: her adulteries. So this angel is proclaiming the eternal gospel to those who live on the earth. And what does this angel have to say? He says, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens the earth, the sea, and the springs of water.
0: That then leads directly to and implies the kingdoms of this world are fallen, even the most powerful one, Babylon the Great, which is just code for saying Rome.
1: (laughs) All authority belongs to him and that Babylon the Great is fallen. It's a victory proclamation. This proclamation comes with a clear call to respond to the people as well. They're supposed to recognize and respond to this true authority of God, which stands in opposition to the existing powers of the world, Babylon the Great here. So if I was going to try to summarize this, what is the gospel of Jesus? I think if I had to give a very short answer, it's the declaration that Jesus is the victorious King of Kings. Yeah. The real question then is, what does this require of us? The gospel demands that we give our faithful loyalty to King Jesus, our Lord, in accordance with the requirements and ethical standards of his new kingdom. The New Testament talks a lot about obedience to the gospel. Jesus' authority demands that we live in accordance with the standards he's set for his kingdom and for his kingdom people.
0: Yeah, there's not an easy way out here where it's, yeah, I'm kind of a Jesus guy, you know, he's <laughs> kind of my buddy. No, it's like you submit to him as your king, yeah. and that has demands, because this is a kingdom that rules overall and it has ethical demands of you. So if you want to opt in, you better be ready. As Jesus would say, count
1: the cost. <laughs> Seriously. It's a big demand, which begs the question, is this gospel of Jesus actually good news?
0: If you are inclined to repent and bring yourself into alignment with the rulership, in this case, King Jesus, who's the ruler of all, then yeah, then this is good news. It's not good news if you're gonna reject it and try to go your own way and try to continue serving the ways of the world and the powers of the world.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think if you repent and you choose loyalty to Jesus, it's the greatest news ever. Yeah. it's Jesus is our savior. He won a victory over death, and he provides the only means of salvation to those who trust in him. Salvation is a result of the gospel of Jesus. No other power in the world is able to provide this. That's worth celebrating. It's worth announcing. It's worth proclaiming to the world. And New Testament authors celebrate this as a result of the gospel. They talk a lot about the way salvation comes from the gospel. So in Romans 1.16.
0: Yeah, a famous verse. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew and also to the Gentile.
1: Yep. So this power of God brings salvation to everyone who believes. In 1 Corinthians 15, first two verses.
0: This is probably like the most famous passage people actually go to when they first hear gospel. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, and he appeared to more than five hundred others at once.
1: Yeah, this is a passage that a lot of people will go to immediately when they start to talk about what does the gospel mean? And they'll point to this passage and say, oh, see, the gospel is all about salvation. It's all about a salvation message.
0: I mean, isn't it that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and then he was seen by a bunch of people.
1: So he's certainly talking about Jesus' ministry. And I think what you can see is that the entirety of Jesus' ministry is culminating in his taking authority and in his being seated at the right hand of God.
0: Yeah, so it's almost like, how did Jesus take this authority? How did Jesus become king? By dying for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, by being buried and being risen from the dead. Hmm. He's describing the how of Jesus becoming king. And the how is he ascended on high. Well, he ascended on high from where? From dying, I mean, he just died and was buried and then
1: he ascended on high. Yeah, Paul can say, I wanna remind you of this gospel, and then he can talk about results of the gospel, And then he can talk about the means by which the gospel came about. And then in the rest of the chapter, he focuses on resurrection and Jesus' authority. Yeah. That's where he brings that message home. Yeah, he does. For him, the gospel and the gospel that's being proclaimed always culminates in the authority of Jesus.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: We'll run into some kind of strange definitions of the gospel. Like we said at the beginning of this. A lot of people will believe or say a lot of different things about gospel. There's a scary amount of variety in trying to find out what people think the gospel is. If it is so important, one would think that we would know it a little bit better and not disagree about what it is. (laughs) Yeah, you would hope. Sometimes people will define the gospel as being a message about individual salvation from sins. So something like the gospel is, I was a sinner. Jesus died for my sins so I can be saved. And that certainly is good news. And it's true as a result of the gospel. But the gospel proclamation itself is about what Jesus has done, what he will do. There's a tendency to make the gospel about my salvation or maybe your salvation rather than it really being about Jesus and his accomplishments.
0: Yeah, which would actually then primarily be about the world's salvation Mm -hmm. or the scope of Jesus's rule, which the claim is he rules all. And I take part in that as an individual who's a part of his world. But it's really to truncate and shortchange the gospel to make it about fixing my problems, though my problems are severe and they do need to be fixed by Jesus.
1: (laughs) Yes. It's like grabbing the spotlight of the gospel and moving it off Jesus and moving it towards my salvation. And linguistically,
0: it's not even justified to do that. We just read what the gospel means according to the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. What it means according to Greek and Roman literature. And so there's a natural way to take that. And the natural way to take it would be that the gospel is all about Jesus's authority over the realms that we're saying he has authority over. And according to the New Testament, it's overall.
1: Yes, I've heard people who will look at passages in the epistles about justification, passages where nothing about the gospel is mentioned, like literally passages with no references to euangelion, no gospel language at all. And they'll say, ah, this passage here, This is the heart of the gospel. Now, there's absolutely a connection between the gospel and salvation or gospel and justification. The gospel makes salvation possible, but I think it's important that we don't confuse the two.
0: Yeah, we as Protestants like to debate like justification and how it works and how does God impute righteousness to us or what are sins imputed to Jesus, like all this stuff. Those are all interesting, fascinating, and actually needful conversations, and they all have to do with how we become right with God. That's what Luther was famously concerned about. To wrap up all those conversations in thinking that the gospel is describing these debates about justification or whatever, that's unfounded. We actually shouldn't do that. We'd actually be helped to situate what the gospel proclamation is properly. And then to also obviously have all these debates and this solid theology on how I access God, how I become right with God, all important. But, but we got to get the language straight. Otherwise, we actually can miss some really rich theology here.
1: Yeah, the gospel is important. And knowing what that means when the biblical authors talk about it is very important. Because if you start to mix that up, you'll come into all of these conversations and these arguments, and you can come in just from a weird angle. And if you mm. get started in a weird spot, it's easy to end up in a really strange place. One other way you'll hear people describe the gospel, I think that's a little strange, they'll describe the gospel as a call to accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. And I think, just a note up front, I think a lot of people will probably use this phrase to mean a lot of different things. Okay. But I find it a little strange. The gospel is a proclamation that Jesus is Lord and Savior of everything. No matter what anybody may think or accept, wherever you are, whatever you do, Jesus is the authoritative King of Kings. He's victorious over death. People don't get to decide whether or not that's true. People get to decide if they're going to live in rebellion to this king or if they're going to seek to live in faithful loyalty. To describe the gospel as something that we need to accept, the gospel doesn't really become true until I've allowed Jesus to come do something.
0: True, we do need to individually accept it. But it's not like an invitation. Let me invite you to make Jesus the Lord of your life. I don't crown Jesus anything. Jesus has been crowned. He's been coronated as the king of the world. And it's a grace of God that he invites me into accepting that rule and submitting myself to that rule and becoming loyal to King Jesus or not to. God gives me the freedom to do so. But this isn't about just having Jesus as your personal religion master who will
1: fix your personal
0: problems.
1: In our culture today, where we can be super individualistic And where people will think of their own internal thoughts and feelings as highest form of truth. If you tell someone that the gospel is a call to accept Jesus as personal Lord and Savior, it's very easy for them to just think that's what you're talking about. Uh, Okay, I'm now going to appoint Jesus as like the king over my internal being, which ultimately leaves you as authoritative over Jesus because you're the one being asked to appoint him in your heart, (laughs) something like that.
0: And that has a lot of just inward dimensions, too. It probably doesn't communicate the ideas of Jesus's lordship over all the land and over all peoples and over all creatures that I'm simply invited to step into, which is not just an internal thing. It has an internal aspect of it, to be sure. But this would involve my whole being if I'm going to come into alignment
1: with his rule. Yeah, that, that gospel proclamation should break you out of that belief that you are actually authoritative over yourself. If we think of the gospel as something that's actualized on just an individual basis, something to be believed and accepted as a truth within each of ourselves, I think we've drastically missed the scope of Jesus' gospel. And we've taken something tremendous and cosmic and we've shrunk it down.
0: We've shrunk it down to a popular way of talking about religion and spirituality in 21st century Western nations.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So here's my last question here, Nick. If we actually want to go proclaim the gospel, if we want to go announce Jesus' authority to the world, what do we actually say? <laughs> what is the content of a gospel proclamation?
0: All right, let me give it a crack. Jesus is king, or however you want to communicate that best in English, that Jesus is the supreme authority and he demands submission. And it's actually really good. It's hard, but it's really good to submit to him because his rule is coming over all, he's returning. And he loves you. <laughs> he does have your interest in mind. And that interest is to align yourself with God's will. So Jesus is king. Communicate that primarily. And then if the question is like, how does that work? That God reconciles humanity to himself, how does God demonstrate that he loves me? How does the incarnation work? Then it's conversation about Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection from the dead, which demonstrate his love and his authority over you. You get to those conversations about the meaning of the atonement, Christ's death, the meaning of God removing our sins, the meaning of forgiveness. You get to those conversations after step one, which is first to communicate that the affirmation, the central Christian affirmation is Jesus is Lord and no one else is.
1: Yeah. Like you said, if we have the opportunity to sit down and talk about this with someone and we want to help them understand how and why this is true, we tell them about what Jesus did. We tell them about his birth, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and that he's going to return to judge and restore all things. This story of what Jesus has done is the story of his rise to power. It's the record of Jesus' victory over evil and death, his coronation as king of kings. And luckily, we have a record of what Jesus did. In fact, we have four of them. There's a reason that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are called the Gospels, Because this is what they're meant to do. They announce Jesus' victory and authority to the world.
0: In Greek, the titles of these documents are called the Evangelion, according to this person. Meaning, they are calling their document that they wrote, so like the gospel, according to Matthew. Mm -hmm. Because this character Matthew is communicating what his story is. His story is the good news. It is the royal announcement that Jesus is Lord.
1: He goes, I want you to know Jesus is authoritative over all, so let me tell you the story of how that came to be true. The end of Matthew, Jesus gives the Great Commission. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus defeated death. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And I think that's a gospel worth proclaiming.
0: Yeah. Amen, man. Yeah, for sure we are really concerned that the gospel that the christian announcement connects with people personally and that that fixes their problems i affirm it does but sometimes that concern on the individual is so heavy that we actually lose sight of a bigger reality here it is appropriate to talk about why it's good news for the individual to accept jesus as lord He is the course correct to the fall of humanity, which we all contribute to. And we all continue to go down the same path that our ancestors have. And we all continue to cause chaos, destruction, death, violence in the world, in our own lives, in our family, in our nations, you know, our communities. Jesus is the fix to that.
1: Yeah. When we look at a world full of death and evil and disease, we can have hope because we know who is king of all. We know where real authority lies and we trust that someday he's gonna return to culminate that authority because that's what he's promised us.
0: And of course, that's good news for the individual that God has demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still wayward and in rebellion, God sent Christ to die for us. He was raised and he was appointed as the rule over all, which is good news for all of creation and
1: all of humanity. Amen.